Uh, If you have your Bible today, and I hope that you do, meet me in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be continuing in our series that we started last week called The Way, where we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount that was preached by Jesus. This is the greatest sermon to ever be preached because Jesus is perfect, so he didn't, his voice didn't crack like mine does a lot of the times. He didn't cough. He, he didn't fumble over words or anything like that. It was literally perfect because it was preached by Jesus. So we're looking at uh, the Beatitudes this morning. Now, the Beatitudes are, are something that many of you might know. Many of you might have seen them uh, at your grandmother's house or your auntie's house, kind of cross-stitched up on the wall or something like that. Uh, but these are not just phrases that, are, are, that look nice on a blanket. These are verses and the words that are really torpedoes to us. Through the Holy Spirit, the Lord will use these to rearrange and wreck and mold your life more and more into his own image. The driving point that I want you to understand is that happiness is the way of Christ. There is no other way to find true, everlasting happiness. Our world searches for it every single day to and fro, trying to find the one thing that would bring in them the most happiness. And researchers say the things the world would claim bring happiness actually do not. Money and possessions. They might bring you a momentary delight, but they're not going to bring you eternal, everlasting happiness. This can only be found in Jesus. And this is why we're looking at the Beatitudes this morning And again, if you've heard these before, please don't check out. That's that you lean in and hear what the Lord has to say. So starting in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3, we're going to read through verse 12, uh, and then we're going to come back and unpack them. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you When others revile you and uh, persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, listen to this, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, some of you are sitting there like, there's a lot of blessed beatitudes in there. Yeah, we're going to go through them all this morning, uh, but we'll get get moving and get rolling. So the first one that you come to in verse 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What I want you to understand out of this is that those who are dependent on God are saved. Because we hear the word poor here, a lot of us automatically think about a social economic class, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, and that's not what this passage is talking about. The word poor, poor in spirit, is referring to the fact that someone has come to an understanding that they cannot save themselves, that they are eternally separated from God, and they are due righteously the, the righteous wrath of God to be poured out on them. This is an understanding that brings about a poor spirit because the wrath of God is pointed at me. 
But the beauty of that is when you come to that understanding and understand that the only way for that to change is to place your faith in Christ, that is when you inherit the kingdom of heaven. So how is this a torpedo to our society and culture and the way that we think? Well, it was a common practice and belief of the Pharisees in the Bible, this religious elite people that because they knew so much and because they could be so good that they could earn their way to heaven. 2,000 years later, this hasn't changed for us. Because if I go out here today and I ask uh, Billy Joe on the street, hey, how, why do you think you deserve to go to heaven? heaven? What are they going to say? Because I'm a good person. Because I'm a good person. I can be good enough to earn my way to heaven. That is not True, Jesus turns what the Pharisees said in that day and what our culture says today upside down. He says, you cannot be good enough. There's not an ounce of us that is good enough to earn and deserve heaven. It is only by the grace and mercy of God that we can get into heaven. To be a follower of Jesus, you must recognize that you cannot save yourself. You must be committed to that idea, but also committed to the idea that what does save you is the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He atoned for your sin. Think about it like this. If we line everybody up on California and just broke it away and let you float into the ocean. No, I'm just kidding. We just lined up right there and we swam to Hawaii. Say, so just, sw just swim to Hawaii. Some people might be able to swim for 10 minutes. Some of you might even be able to go to the hour. Some of you are in really, really good shape. I'm not. I'm not going very far. What will happen? Everybody would eventually drown. But what if the Lord came in on a helicopter and said, if you would just look upon me and call upon my name, I will airlift you straight to Hawaii. What do you think this does to our sin? You might be able to swim for a moment. <laughs> You might be able to run this race that you have set before you for a small season, but your sin will catch up with you. And Jesus says, look upon me on the cross and call upon my name and you will be saved. I will airlift you, if you will, into my kingdom where you will never lose, where your sin has been paid for. This is what it takes to be poor in spirit knowing that you cannot save yourself, but only God can save you. Look at verse four. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, words are extremely important again, so we need to look at the word mourn, because mourning over sin will bring comfort. What, what this passage is talking about is not the mourning of the lost of a loved one or a wayward child that has gone away. Now, I want you to hear me. If you're in that season, the, Jesus will meet you there and he will bring you comfort because he is near to the brokenhearted. But in this passage, what he's talking about is the fact that we mourn and have grief over our sin. And that grieving leads to repentance. And in that repentance, we are comforted. We are comforted by the love of God being poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, again, this is countercultural because our culture says that grief over sin is, is like self-hatred. 
just, hey, you're human. You're giving the best shot that you can. You're doing anything and everything. Just kind of pick yourself up by your bootstraps and keep on moving. You're doing all right. The issue with this is you picking yourself up by your bootstraps does not save your soul. Again, Christ is the only one who can save you. And Jesus promises you that if you grieve over your sin, he will comfort you. He will comfort you with the outpouring of his love and forgive us our sins. There must be an understanding of the weight of your sin because it is not a light thing. It is not a light thing in church. If I can get you to to understand one pastoral thing this morning, that if you don't hear anything else I have to say, hear this, confess your sin. Your sin is not a joke. It is not a light thing to play around with and to deal with. Because of the sin of man, this is why Jesus drank every last drop on the cross. He didn't go through a light punishment for sin. It was excruciating. So why then should we take our own sin lightly? Do not take your sin lightly. These begin to build off of one another. So as we have mourning our, our sin, as we are um, poor in our spirit, it produces in us, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek will have great influence in our society. When we understand the weight of our sin, when we understand that there's nothing in us that can save ourselves, that it is only Jesus, it produces this great humbleness in us this great thankfulness and gentleness and meekness, it produces that in us. And here's why this is important. The Jews deeply wanted uh, autonomy from the Roman Empire as they wanted to inherit the land that God had promised them. And within that group of people, there was a smaller group of Jews called the Zealots who were willing to fight to break away from the Roman Empire. Uh, to, to inherit the land that God had promised them. So they're raging all these revor- uh, wars and creating these revolts and all these different things. And although they lost every single battle, the, the point behind this is this is not what Christ wants of us. He's not asking us to go and revolt. He's asking us to go and be meek. For us to be meek, we will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what you see with people coming to know the Lord. It is with great gentleness and meekness that we call people to repentance. It is not a dominant, shouting, nasty, vulgar, whatever, calling people and telling them that they're going to burn in hell. It is a meekness and gentleness that we call people to repentance because we care so deeply for their soul. And we want to fellowship with them in heaven for all of eternity. Take a lady named Rosaria Buttersworth. She wrote a beautiful book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Now, at one point in time, Rosaria, she was a lesbian feminist, okay? She is now a believer and a daughter of the king, and it wasn't because someone came up and yelled in her face, degraded her, told her that she was going to burn in hell, holding these signs that had ignorant phrases all over him. No, it was a pastor who said, why don't you come to my house? Why don't you break bread with my family? 
Come hang out with my kids. Come get to know us. Let's get to know you. I'll teach you the things of God. You can ask me anything. But I just want you to come over. I want to get to know you. There is a meekness and a humbleness that enticed her. And what is that? That's Jesus. And now she's a follower of Christ. And that's what this, her book is literally all about. The gospel comes with a house key. That if you're going to build relationships and present the gospel and sow seeds, bring people into your home. Do life with them. This is a meekness that is produced in us. Because we know our Lord looked upon us and said, come in. I'm here for you. Verse 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I want, this is important because those who hunger for righteousness will defeat sin. If you are truly saved and you have a contrite heart over your sin and you are meek, and it, it makes sense that we will no longer desire the things of the world. We will desire the things of God. Jesus is saying that we will be happy when we hunger for a character that pleases him. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, hear me, church, you will be satisfied. And this is extremely, extremely important because as a pastor, I've met with people who, who they're mourning over their sin. They do have a poor spirit within them, but the thing is they doubt that God can transform them, that God's righteousness is good enough for them. And hear me, the beauty of salvation is that we have an opportunity now not to sin. We're not going to be sinless, but we can very much sin less in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you a question. Do you struggle with anger? Do you struggle with self-hatred, unforgiveness, lust, greed, or some other issue? Jesus can deliver you from them all if you want that, if you hunger for that righteousness and hunger for that freedom. Now, hear me. I'm not saying if you have enough faith, everything will be peachy keen. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we must fight the sin that is in our life. And to kill the sin in our life, we have to have a greater love. And that love and hunger is our heavenly father, and we seek righteousness, and we seek his ways. And as we do that, the sin in our life grows smaller and smaller and smaller. It's called the expulsive power of a greater affection. Where does your affection lie? Is it with the king? Or is it with the world? Speaking about hunger and thirsting for righteousness, have you ever fasted before? We did a three-day fast a couple of years ago with a church uh, that we called Sacred Gathering. And I remember just going through that, seeking the Lord. The Lord did amazing things during those three days. But coming to the end of the fast, I remember seeing the plate that I would break my fast with. <laughs> And I went from hungry to hangry real quick. Started salivating. I took 
that plate went to pound town. I wore that thing out. I was so hungry. Sparks were flying off my plate, all those different things. I was so hungry. I could not wait to eat. This is how we have to be with the things of God. Every single day we wake up, it's like we have fasted and we're sitting down with a plate that we have not had in three days. Yet we have it every day. We must hunger and thirst for righteousness and the things of God. This is what verse 6 means. Verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The merciful will receive mercy. And again, words are important, so we need to understand what this word mercy is speaking towards. Mercy is giving something or giving something good to someone who is suffering. So people who are merciful are those who go out of their way to help others in their time of need. Yet sadly, I think this is the hardest one for any of us. Because more often than not, that means you have to stop looking at yourself and look at other people and help them, even though you have things going on in your life. There was a study that took place in, uh, at the Princeton Seminary in 1970 that involved 40 students, 40 students. They were broken up into two groups, okay? One group was told they needed to prepare a talk on the careers that they would be in once they obtained their degree. The other group was told they needed to prepare a talk on uh, the Good Samaritan, okay? They had two locations that they had to go to to give this uh, talk, and they were then divided, but they didn't know this. They were then divided into subgroups out of those groups that were given various degrees of haste. And what I mean by that is some of them were told, hey, you're already five minutes late. You need to go. <laughs> some of them were told, hey, you've got five, minute, five to ten minutes to get to the building, take your time, and walk on. Others were told, hey, if you just walk quickly, you'll, you'll, you've got plenty of time. The college here, the seminary, was in an urban area, and they strategically placed this man in an alleyway that every student had to walk through. This was the dead of winter. This man was slumped over. He was shaking, and he was coughing, and he didn't have a coat. There was a direct tie to those people who were in the biggest amount of hurry to the amount of people that didn't help. So the more people who were in a hurry didn't help this man. They walked on by him, allowing him to quiver and shake and cough, knowingly, knowing he needs help. I think one of the easiest things for us to do is solely focus on our own issues and think, I've got my own problems. Why would I help anybody else with theirs? But remember, we all need mercy. And Jesus promises that those who give mercy will receive mercy. Did you know that alcoholics, if they help out other alcoholics, have a greater uh, um, success rate at battling their addictions? Someone who has their own problems helping someone else who has their problems. Did you know that People who give to those who have needs are more likely to be successful in their workplace. They're also more likely to not have financial troubles. It's counterintuitive. But the beauty and wonder of this verse talking about this mercy is that it's not that we merely receive this from man, but that we receive this mercy from God. 
Jesus says in Luke 6.38, give and it will be given to you. We need mercy from God in our time of need. So I'll tell you and ask you, church, to be generous with mercy to others. God will meet you where you are and lavish you with mercy. Verse 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those with integrity will experience the greatest intimacy with God. You see, the first four Beatitudes, they're in a reference to a relationship with God, okay? The other four are in relationship with our peers, with the people that are around us. So this pure in heart that we see here has something to do with the quality of our relationships with people that are around us. Specifically, do you have integrity within those relationships? See, a person who is pure in heart is a person of integrity. They hate hypocrisy. They refuse to wear a mask around others, trying to be something that they're not. They're not one person in one situation and another person in another uh, situation. They are tried and true in both situations. When we have this integrity, this pureness in heart, we will have an intimate knowledge and understanding of who God is. And here's why. Listen to this. Because if you're fake around people, you're going to be fake with God. Period. If you're fake around people, you're going to be fake with God. And if we are fake with God, we will not experience God and how he has intended us to experience him. And if you think about it, it's kind of pointless to be fake around God. Because he sees right through it anyways. He knows exactly what you've done, when you did it, and how you've done it. So why be fake? Be who you are in light of what God has called you to be. That leads us to our next beatitude. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You see, peacemakers will manifest the character of God. And it honestly makes sense that the most effective peacemakers are those who have integrity. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We are to be ambassadors of reconciliation. And what this means is, is that we go out into the world and we share the gospel. We proclaim the good news in hopes to see people come to repentance and reconcile their relationship with their heavenly father. And then... We work hand-in-hand with them to reconcile relationships of their peers. We, as followers of Jesus, as children and sons of God, are ambassadors of reconciliation. As a result of being a peacemaker is to be called a son of God. And in most languages, son carries this connotation of partaking in the character of. So if I look at you and I call you a son of a dog, this is not a slam against your parents. (laughs) Yeah, that's hitting you right now. This, this, is, this is not a slam. Some of you are like, oh. Uh, this is not a slam against your parents. This is a slam against you because you're taking on the character of. So if we're called a peacemaker, we're reflecting and taking on the peacemaking character of God. And honestly, even though we are to be ambassadors of reconciliation and we are to be peacemakers, This does not mean that the world will always live peaceably with us. It's easy to see there's growing hostility. 
This is why in verse 10 and 11 and 12, it says this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The persecution and hardship that we face for the sake of Christ should give us great assurance of our salvation. Because if you are not a true follower of Jesus, you will not endure to the end. You will not endure through persecution. There will always be people who view us as enemies. And it's not because we're in the world acting like fools. We're enemies for righteousness sake. Us and the world don't go together. We're seeking the things of God. On Christ's account, we will be persecuted. Because if you think about it practically, we're going through the world, bumping elbows and building relationships and calling people to repentance. And in the process of sharing the gospel with them, what do you say? Hey, you're not good enough to get to heaven. That rakes against the scales enough. But we also tell them, but Christ is enough. This will rub against the scales of a society and church in these hardships, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. It's going to be extremely easy to sulk when you face hardships and persecution. It's going to be easy to withdraw away, say, well, that didn't work. I'm going to go this way. It's going to be easy to be angry, but Jesus encourages us in those moments and says, your reward is great in heaven. So church, fix your eyes on him. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim. The, the momentary kingdom you can build here will fade away. But the eternal promise that the king himself has promised us will be for all of eternity. That will never fade. I would say, that suffering and rejection and persecution are just as much markers of a Christian as being meek and merciful. Why is that? Because no disciple is greater than his master. And who is our king? Who do we follow? What happened to him? He was rejected. He was persecuted. He was beaten. He suffered. So why do we think we would live any differently? These are beautiful moments that should give us a great gift of assurance of our salvation and reveal in us a true happiness in the way of Christ. But we do have a problem here. If you are not a follower of Jesus, this doesn't apply to you. Because see, in this sermon, Jesus is talking to his disciples. If you are not a disciple of Jesus, you will not have true happiness. Yes, you can have momentary happiness, like I said earlier. You can go on a nice vacation. You can go buy a beautiful home and a fancy car, get all of these different scholars, all these different things. But it's momentary. Your sin will catch up with you. Those things will be like sand in your fingertips, slowly bleeding between them. 
you must repent of the sin that is in your life. And hear me, Jesus is waiting with open arms saying, come to me. I drank every last drop of the judgment for your sin. If you would just look upon me and call upon me as Lord and Savior. Hear me, if you're here and you do not know Jesus, this happiness and joy in everlasting life is offered to you. If you go out of these doors and to the left after the service, I'd love to talk with you about it. I'd love to talk with you about it. Because it's the most important thing that you can do. Because we're not promised to live a moment from now. Church, these beatitudes are not something to simply be stitched up on the wall and forgotten about. These are things that... <coughs> Almost got through it. These, these are things that should mold our lives. These are things that should shape us, that should rearrange it. Because when we begin to do that and we're molded more and more into the image of Jesus, we find a true joy and a true happiness and we live as we are called to live. And hear me, true happiness is the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are so thankful we are so thankful for what you have done and who you are. <coughs> the fact that you meet us here, that you live the perfect life that we could not live, Father, and you've called upon us as your children. So Father, I pray for those that follow Jesus here. I pray that they would not be stagnant that they wouldn't be afraid to proclaim your name among the nations in their circle of influence. God, I pray that we would be bold for your namesake. Father, I pray that you bind the enemy as we do your will, as we are your hands and feet. For the person sitting here, Father, that does not know you, God, I pray now that you would break them. that they would see the weight of the sin that is on their shoulders. They would see the judgment of that sin, the right, righteous wrath of God pointed at them for that sin. But I pray that they would also see you and that they would look full in your wonderful face and that they would call out upon you as the Savior of the world, the one true God. You are alive, seated at the right hand of the Father with the keys to death in your hands because you have defeated it. You have dominion over it. And in you, we defeat sin and death. So God, call them to repentance and bring them to a saving faith today. Jesus, we love you. We praise you in your precious in holy name, amen.